I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and podcaster, writer, filmmaker, and our very own supervising producer, Emily Gagne. The late 90s had the best ensemble comedies for young women in the history of film, and one of the jewels of those ensembles was Kirsten Dunst. We already talked about Bring It On and how much we all adore her, and Emily, that's one of the reasons you're with us today. Uh, We put these two movies on our list, and you were like, I am in. But really, it's bananas how in the span of two to three years, you have movies which are funny, insightful, sexy, and empowering, and mostly written and or directed by women. That doesn't happen even now. Now, Emily, I know you were influenced a lot by these movies. So why do you think we got so many of them and then they all just went away? Well, I think we have to thank Clueless a lot for this because, you know, teen movies are not a new thing. They've been happening since the 50s. Um, And in the 80s, they had a huge boom, of course, with John Hughes and all that. But Clueless was like really the first major teen movie about girls that like hit the box office that like really made a splash and got people's attention. And that was written and directed by a woman, Amy Heckerling. And I think that that made a huge splash and made a huge impact. But also, I think just the culture was turning towards teen girls at this point, which I feel so lucky to have grown up in this era because I felt like I was like catered to and like spoken to sometimes for better or for worse and sometimes in a negative way. But like the Spice Girls were the biggest act in the world around this time, 1996. They came onto the scene and they blew up. And I think people were like, wow, teen girls and tween girls, actually, which is the group that I was really in, uh, are marketable. And they are hungry for content that is about them and features like more than one female protagonists like features like five girls two girls three girls the craft all that kind of stuff (laughs) i i feel like this was like the big era of teen girl comedies and i think unfortunately because a lot of other teen comedies came out of this era that were like male-centric like american pie for example after this we sort of like turned into like a male gazy sort of Mm -hmm. comedy again like we did in the 80s but we had this little sliver of time where we were like let's focus on the girls. And it it had a huge impact on me. And I think made me the like cinema enjoyer that I am today. Like I, I just love stories about girls that treat girls. And the seriously. world, the world is better for it because it made you this way. And Hollywood Suite is better for it. Thank God for these, this little sliver. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting just listening to you talk. We're, you know, in, you're, you're a bit younger than me, but we're in the same kind of 
group in terms of like upbringing in films. But if you think about the 70s, which, you know, films that we were not raised on that we've had to discover in our 30s. And we've talked about some of these films on a year in film, including Little Darlings, for instance, from yeah. 1975. And uh, a film we haven't talked about, but I, I love so, so much, Foxes, the Adrian Lyne uh, mm-hmm. debut. You know, those were successful, especially Little Darlings, and, you know, should have taught studio executives and should have taught, you know, the industry that this, like the 70s, they were ready for stories about young girls. And yet they just kind of closed that book very immediately, despite the the box office. Um, and so it would take like a full 20 years, almost 25 years before we would get these stories coming up again. I also just think it's so odd because like there is very clearly a box office draw for young men because these women are talking about sex and they are half naked very often or promiscuously dressed in different ways. Like that was the thing with the Spice Girls is that, yes, they were about empowerment and girl power, but they were also wearing like crop tops and miniskirts basically constantly. Right. So you've got the male gaze kind of going on at the same time with this. And I think in some shows like one of my favorites is Sarah Kernikin's Strike All I Want to Do because I think that's mm-hmm. one of the most progressive movies about um, teen sexuality especially female sexuality that's out there mm-hmm. um, but that's also a movie that it's like I can see some of the male gazy and one of the reasons that got greenlit was because Harvey Weinstein wanted to sleep with Kirsten Dunst so and then it got buried when that didn't happen so it's interesting to see kind of why they got made too and why there wasn't more box office ideas for young men watching these movies. Yeah, I mean, just look at the poster for Strike. Look at, you know, the VHS cover, which is basically, I mean, maybe I'm picturing this wrong. I don't have it in front of me, but like an upshot skirt like photo like it's it's quite provocative and doesn't actually represent what that film is at all um and it's always interesting talking about the marketing campaigns of the two films that we're focused on today because I feel that those were very different. They were kind of one was quite sexualized, but then when you go to watch the film, it kind of makes fun of its own marketing campaign. And then the other is focused on the teen girls, but um, not as sexualized. Yeah. Well, one of the movies today is described as the anti-clueless, which I am totally on board for. Well, ladies, let's get into it today. Okay. So it's a very difficult admission for me that many of my favorite pop culture things were introduced to me by a very, very bad boyfriend in my early 20s. And one of those things is the movie Drop Dead Gorgeous, which I love so dearly. I am genuinely going to do my best not to make this whole part of the episode just a clip fest. Uh, it does have stuff in it, like many things from the 90s comedies, that will make you cringe. Uh, I'm looking at you, pedophilia jokes, racial stereotypes, eating disorder jokes, and Will Sasso's developmentally challenged character. Yeah. <sighs> I am missing a bunch of stuff there, I'm sure, that's also very a- appropriate offensive. Appropriate when I was 14 years old, less, if not not appropriate at all. Uh, now that I'm sliding into freak. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Emily also described this as a very difficult movie to recommend to people. I agree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, as we say so often on this podcast, not for everyone. Um, there is a modern review of this movie in The Guardian that describes it as viciously indecent. That is not wrong. Yeah. And uh, that having been said, it is simultaneously scathing and full of bright young stars and women comedy veterans. And I love it so much. Me Jesus too. loves winners the way I love Drop Dead Gorgeous. (laughs) All right. I am done gushing. Emily, do you want to give us a quick plot summary of this one before we really dig into it? It's got some story behind it. Yeah. um, It is about a beauty pageant in Mount Rose, Minnesota. And it's about the girls that are participating in this pageant, including Amber Atkins, who's played by Kirsten Dunst, who's sort of a 
quote unquote trailer trash uh, who is trying to win the pageant to get money so that she can kind of get out of town and become Diane Sawyer. And then there's her major <laughs> opponent, Becky Ann Lehman, who's played by Denise Richards. And she's sort of like the perfect teen girl. And her mom, played by Kirstie Alley, is a reigning Mount Rose American teen princess. So she's obsessed with having her daughter, Becky Ann Lehman, win this competition and move forward. And she's so desperate that she's willing to, you know, maybe kill a couple of girls to get that (laughs) crown. It's so dark, as we mentioned, and you are literally watching teenagers being destroyed. And yet, weirdly, it's a really funny, uplifting sort of movie at the end of it. Am I wrong yeah. here? I think part of the key to that is it's a mockumentary. Um, yeah. You know, employing that mockumentary gaze, which, um, you know, ha- had done very well for Best in Show. Or is Best in Show? No, Best in Show is a year after this. Yes, this That's is Waiting 2000. for Guffman. People compare this yeah. one to Waiting for so Guffman. So Guffman, but also, I mean, this isn't necessarily a mockumentary, but um, something like kind of the fake found footage of uh, Blair Witch Project, which is the same yeah. year and was a huge block box office hit. Putting the mockumentary on there and kind of, you know, going through the fourth wall and we do see the the documentary crew and they kind of meet up with some of the guys from Cops, which I think is one of my favorite running gags. In yeah. this film. There's just something about that, that it, it um, tempers the scathing elements of it. It tempers how mean this film is uh, can be at times because, you know, we're supposed to be watching this documentary. And of course, it's not because it's Kirsten Dunst, who we instantly recognize and Kirstie Alley from Cheers and Ellen Barkin and Allison Janney. And I'm going to say it her greatest role and i don't think she'd be mad at us for saying that she's talked a lot about this film this is a woman who has won i think four or five uh emmys for the west wing and she says this is the film that is her like signature film um it's just so interesting putting those kinds of big name actors in a mockumentary which is um very different than something like the christopher guest films yeah yeah it's interesting because um the writer of this film lona williams uh, she actually like really pushed for them to cast like no names in these roles mm-hmm. because she wanted people to believe this was like a real like documentary or get tricked like people did with the Blair Witch Project. But they chose for obvious reasons and, and to market the film to put a curse and dunce or Denise Richards. Like, I think we underestimate her power at this time. She had just come oh off of wild things. Right. Yes. So, Which is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And um, but then we, and, and she did Starship Troopers in 97. So, like, yeah. She had box office behind her for sure. Yeah, she, she wasn't a Bond girl yet, but she was heading in that direction. That was yeah. her next step, right? Like after yeah. this, she she did the Bond film. So, and then we get like Amy, this is Amy Adams' like debut mm-hmm. the, in this coming film. off of Dinner Theater. She took a break from her Dinner Theater because she's from Minnesota, is my understanding, or the area, and they were auditioning only people from that area. She took a break from her Dinner Theater job, um, where she was both, I think, on stage but also a waitress. Uh, and like they did the, she did the audition and Lana Williams is like, well, that's it. That's that like this. I've never seen a part nailed like this. Like that is her. And she looks, it's her, like, it looks like her. And this is six years before Junebug, which is really her like breakout. It's also like, she is so young and so different. And it's, 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 it's insane watching her in this and hilarious. Oh yeah. Really nervous. It's been about two months. I haven't told my boyfriend yet. How did you know? I meant nervous about the pageant. Oh, nervous about the pageant. Yeah. 
what kills me is that when they went to Minnesota, they went to Minnesota to cast because they had gone through all of the women in um, in L.A. And, of course, Brittany Murphy is in this. God, we all miss and love oh Brittany God. Murphy. R.I.P. Uh, yeah, R.I.P. Yeah, she's the heart it. of everything. Oh, she's so great. But they went to Minnesota because they were like, we need to find girls with normal eyebrows because this, <laughs> the style at the time was like those super thin eyebrows. Pencil. And they couldn't exactly. Yeah. And they couldn't find any young women who looked normal. And they were like, well, let's go to Minnesota and see what they've got there. So eyebrows was what, the driving yeah, force. What I've always what I've always wondered about that scenario, and I don't know if either of you have an experience with this, but um, when I get my makeup done for a year in film, our incredible makeup artist, Melissa Nickel, has to fill in the gaps in my eyebrows because I overplucked them so badly in 1999, <laughs> 19, like 2000, which we all did. And I wish, I remember my mom telling me, like, you are going to regret this so much. And I'm like, <laughs> shut up, mom. And now I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the big thick ones are a thing. Cara Delevingne, you were ruined it for all of us. I do have yes. thick eyebrows. I do. I, mean, I remember my mom like kind of tearing up and being like, you had Brooke Shields eyebrows. And now I'm like, <laughs> I do have the outlines of Brooke Shields eyebrows, but uh, they, they're a little patchy. I feel lucky because my mom like didn't actually let me pluck my eyebrows or do anything. Mm. Like she was, va- I wasn't allowed to wear makeup when I was young, which is so mm-hmm. funny because that's literally, I'm just like completely the opposite of what my you're, mom you're wanted You're basically me to a be. painted lady at this point. Yes. So <laughs> I'm kidding. I say that lovingly. No, no. Lovingly. Yeah. No, I mean, I wear red lipstick every day. It's like my signature. Yeah. Anyways, she wouldn't let me pluck my eyebrows or do anything. So I, I have my like real eyebrows and they're like beautiful they're they're decent and i feel so blessed at the time i did not feel blessed mm-hmm. i felt very angry mm-hmm. at my mom mm-hmm. and my mom probably would have she would have never let me go into a beauty pageant like this either like this would mm-hmm. be but i would have loved to have participated in a beauty pageant even <laughs> though it's problematic and even though like we see in this movie that it's kind of like degrading but like i would have just loved to have worn like a fancy dress and be yeah. up there and do like a tap number you know like i just you would have you would have been like amber atkins level in that beauty pageant where it's like you're actually talented but you also have a really good head on your shoulders and you see you know the degradation you see the the evil um i, f- I want to think that 14 year old emily would have been that like that wise sage beauty pageant contestant i hope so i also like my family like not I hope they don't listen to this, but they're a little bit like white <laughs> trash, like a little. Oh, bit. mine too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I related to Amber Atkins, like being that girl that was underestimated, but was trying so hard to show mm-hmm. herself and was working so hard. Like it breaks your heart when Amber Atkins like finds out that her tap costume is missing and that she won't be able to perform in the number because the the costumes have to be approved ahead of time. And you're like, no, like she she's worked mm-hmm. so hard. We've seen her. She works at a morgue doing makeup mm-hmm. and she's like practicing while she's working. She's like, I'm lucky to have a job where I can practice my talent. And uh, and the fact <laughs> like it's so Sorry. it's so hilarious. I can't even. But like we're, we're our, our hearts are broken because we know the effort that she's putting in that the, the other heart. girls are not that she's trying so hard. And this means so much to her, not just to win. But to like be recognized, I think, as a winner and as somebody who is achieving something, because I think she's been underestimated yeah. for so long, even probably within her household, too. 
Yeah, it's not even about she. You know, the running joke of this is she knows she's not going to win because um, her nemesis is the richest girl in town. Her mother runs the pageant. Of course, it's rigged, and we know it's rigged. And you know, Denise Richards's talent is this terrible song where she's wheeling around Mount Rushmore. It's just ridiculous. No, she wheels around oh, Jesus. It's, the, it's, it's the I Jesus. can't take my eyes off of you. Right, she, she wears the Mount Jesus. Rushmore yes. hat, and then she wheel. I can't oh take my, my eyes off of you. Sung totally tone deaf. So it's it is. Amazing. It's not about Amber winning and keep in mind the first place prize for this pageant is a $500 scholarship and even in 1999 you could not go to college on $500 it's not like you <laughs> know the 1910s like a technical college too isn't it though? Sure, so it's like you would go like and you that. would learn cosmetology Maybe. which she already does yeah yeah <laughs> I mean and so it is really she wants to perform for her mother her mother's been who's played by Ellen Barkin Annette blown up in a trailer park um, incident <laughs> and she has a beer can fused to her hand eventually it's a hook um which is a very off-color joke if i but probably one of my favorites i would think uh and so you know it really is she wants to show her mom her tap talent and she's got allison janey her mom's best friend uh they're just you know, rooting her on and and cheering her on and, and you know, really taking over this kind of secondless aunt role that I, I really love where she's beloved and um but you're right, Emily, like she's just she's 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 the underdog. She's the bottom of the pile. Yeah. Allison Janney, though, has that line that I think sums up the point of the whole movie, which is why <laughs> I love it, because it's the truth I know, which is You are a good person. Good things happen to good people. No. It's pure bullshit, sweetie. You're lucky as hell, so you might as well enjoy it. Yeah. Well, the other reason I love this is it's such an earnest film. Everybody is just doing their best, and everybody has this mild amount of delusion that you require for success, that they are good at the thing they do, and people are going to recognize that the thing they do is a good thing. Yeah. Like the young woman who does uh, dog calls. She is so yes. proud of those dog calls, and yes. you're watching just being like, this is so embarrassing and so funny at the same time. But none can compare to the greatest bark of all, the German Shepherd. She's the one that shows her scar because her um, German Shepherd mauled her. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she yes. lifts up her shirt and she's got like, like they made they remade my belly from parts of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> But again, she says it so earnestly that you're like, oh, mm -hmm. that's incredibly funny. Mm -hmm. Again, all three of us love this. All three of us have dark and bent senses of humor mm -hmm. in some respects. But I can see people watching this and just kind of looking at each other, which a lot of the critics did, and go, this is repellent. Like, because there is an element of, am I supposed to be laughing at these people? But I think because of the way the tone works, you're on their side versus the Kirstie Alley and Denise Richards We're character. On Amber's side, and yeah. you yes. know, when I look at reviews for this film, there's some exceptions with Janet Maslin, for instance, who also hated it, but mostly written about by white male critics. This yeah. film was not made for them at all. It was made for young girls who understand what's being satirized because they live it every single day. So I'm not surprised that critics panned it. Look at the tra uh, the trailer and the poster. It's not quite what the film actually is, and I think. Quite unfairly, they're comparing it to a film like Smile from 1975, oh, which so I love. Yeah. Totally love. Just has just been restored. It's available on Blu-ray. I can't remember. I want to say it might be Arrow. I can't. I, 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 we should look that up. But uh, oh my god, watch Smile. I wish I had known what Smile was. Watching Drop Dead Gorgeous for the first time, but in some ways, I'm glad I didn't because it allowed me to just absorb Drop Dead Gorgeous 
for what it is, is a film that could only be made in the late 90s and, in fact, in 1999. And I think comparing it to Smile is not necessarily fair. Oh, it's a totally different film. And Smile doesn't focus on the women. Smile focuses on the men. Yeah, like, Bruce it's a Dern is different... in it. Um, yeah. There's some great interviews on this Blu-ray I watched of Bruce Dern, who's, you know, this is Laura Dern's father. He's quite elderly, talking about his experiences making Smile. I really would encourage anyone listening to this episode to, to check out Smile for sure. Well, the other one they compare it to is, it what is it? The title is like The Perfect true story of the cheerleader, cheerleader yeah, Holly Hunter. mother, which is Holly yeah. Hunter. And I, I watched about half of it and I was like, again, this is not the same thing. It just happens to be a woman who hired a hit. And there's an, a mockumentary element to that one, but it's a drama. It's very much not a comedy. But I can see this being a combination of Waiting for Guffman and Smile and like the concept of that with the mockumentary. So like there's a there's a little bit of each. But Fargo but I just, in there too. Oh yeah. Well, with the Minnesotan accents, oh, right? Yeah. And the, and the, but that's also like a lot of people were on the fence about Fargo because of the accents. Are they like, are we supposed to be laughing at these people because of the accents? I mean, right? we have like, we have a... an actress in common with Fargo. She's only seen in this weird commercial in Drop Dead Gorgeous. But oh. the woman who's yes. murdered in Fargo, she's doing this like sausage factory. Oh. Um, so great. Like she's a, a very interesting, doesn't act anymore. I just love St. Paul pork products. In fact... I love them so much. I work here now. Yeah, that's her. So, I mean, that's not a, that's not a, my understanding, not a put upon accent. No. <laughs> like, that is her accent. Yeah. That maybe exaggerated a smidge. But um, this is, this is Minnesota. I love the way they discuss, uh, they call like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah or like, you know, we're not like those big city urban folk, you know, like the devils in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Like, I love the idea of <laughs> villainizing Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is actually a very cool twin city. But um, yeah, oh, that the is... Lutherans versus the Catholics oh. and that Mindy Sterling line about yeah. that's why we use grape juice for the blood of Christ to yeah. avoid alcoholism. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's yeah. vicious. Or even just yeah. like uh. the fact that like um amber's really excited to go to the airport hojo like like yes they start cheering yeah the airport howard johnson uh, and uh, again i can see why you would look at this and go like they're making fun of all of these characters but there's such an element of reality one of my favorite moments is that um when she gets to the next semi-final and she's sitting there in the audience watching all these other young women do their talents and there is a better tap dancer like it's mm -hmm. just she she has that point of view and that perspective of, oh, I am not at that level. And I had all these dreams because I was living in a bubble and now I see what the bar is. And then she fails up again, but it's always like she sees what the bar is and I think it makes her a better person. And I think that's what people are missing. Whereas like Becky's character just knows she's going to win everything and doesn't have to excel at all or work hard. That's sort of the distinction there. Um, I do have a question for both of you because this this film affected me in a really unusual way. Um, I, mean, I love seafood, but I every time I eat <laughs> shellfish at a buffet, namely at the Mandarin, um, I love the Mandarin. I don't want the Mandarin coming at me. I, I, uh, I enter their contest every month. We've had a group date with many Hollywood suite staff going, not many, but several, uh, going to the Mandarin on Valentine's Day. I don't want to disparage the Mandarin, but anytime I eat shellfish at a mandarin-like restaurant i picture drop dead gorgeous and the fate of those beauty queens do either of you have that issue i i don't know i, I didn't <laughs> I, I will say to think about it i will now <laughs> i didn't eat shellfish 
like until after I watched this movie because I was younger and I was a kind of a picky eater. So it definitely mm. did turn me off even trying shellfish for a mm-hmm. long time mm-hmm. because all mm-hmm. I would see was all the beauty queens puking over the ledge. See, puking this is over what the I ledge. think is interesting because yeah. a lot of critics went after that scene as being repellent. And I'm like, no, there is an identical scene in Stand By Me. Well, not identical. Yeah, maybe not identical. because but, but like very similar. Because that's one guy puking on an audience. This is maybe 120 women puking at unison. <laughs> Oliver Hojo. (laughs) But um, I I love this scene. I love that Amber's white trash background. And I love that you brought that up, Emily. I have to say at one of the funerals, there's um, Jell-O salad. And I will say my my family's from Oregon. Um, I'm very proud of that. Um, and was there jello salad at my mother's funeral? 100%. Did I have a temper tantrum at 17 because I thought that meant we were low class? Yes, I did. Am I proud of it at 38? I am now. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> watching that kind of brought Jell-O's up memories. Back, baby. <laughs> it looked exactly like the jello salad at my mom's funeral, which is so not a Canadian context at all. Um, but I love that Amber is saved in this situation by her white trash background and that interview with her on camera where she's like, Oh, I don't eat shellfish. Ma always says, don't eat anything that can carry its house around with it. Who knows the last time it's been cleaned? Because it's funny because they live in a trailer, so they're kind of moving around in their own homes. But uh, yeah, yeah. pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) All right. I want to get a little bit into the making of because uh, this, as well as Sugar and Spice, what was supposed to be called Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics, both were written by Lona Williams and both were mildly traumatic for her. She has recently started talking about this movie in like the last five years or so, but she wouldn't do any interviews about anything. I think she actually got out of the film and television industry because she just, the anxiety and the the bad experiences she had. This sounds like a very difficult film to work on um, because it was a bunch of people who were young trying to make names for themselves and trying to appease the studio that very much wanted Clueless when that's not what this film is and everybody on it knew they weren't making Clueless. So it was directed by Michael Patrick Jan, who was part of The State. And do you guys remember The State at all? No, I do. I know his name from Super Troopers and stuff he did subsequent, but I, I don't actually know The State at all. It was a, a tr- like an acting troupe that contained people like Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter, David Wayne, um, Kevin Allen. Allison, like it's like a bunch of people who now are big names and have gone on to do a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. My, um, there was a TV series on MTV. Um, Michael Patrick Jan was one of those people. And all of them kind of got tapped of like, these are now the new comedy geniuses. They were kind of seeing them as like, these are going to be our like Mel Brooks, Gene Wilder, uh, Richard Pryor. Like that's the, that's kind of what some Hollywood some big was shoes to fill. <laughs> but that's what, I mean, when you look like David Wayne has kind of done that, right? Like he's yeah. made his Michael own. Michael Showwater, kinda, yeah. That makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, they've sort of paved the way for stuff like Judd Apatow. I think Judd Apatow became what they were expected to do was change comedy. Does that make sense? I I do. I think it does make sense. And I also... Coming back to Judd Apatow, when I was watching Drop Dead Gorgeous, it there were elements of it that reminded me a bit of Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah, I guess that's really interesting. I don't know. Uh, I, I I feel really bad reading the uh, Lonnie Williams takes on this. Um, she, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean this disparagingly, she's exceptionally bitter. But when I read about what she wanted to achieve, there is part of me, and I don't think I would be any different in her position, that I'm just like, how incredibly naive that you thought you would be making a studio film without a recognizable name or face as an actress. That's just not how things are done. 
And I know she's, it seems like the Michael Patrick Jan, and he is admitted to this in interviews. He was 26 at the time directing this. Complete asshole. Insensitive in his own words. Kind of owned up to treating her badly. Uh, I hope in a way that would never happen today where she had ideas and she had a vision and they were shut down completely. Um, and it's it's upsetting, but it's also, yes, you're making a film about girls with no male lead, which is very hard for studios to get behind. Uh, and it didn't go exactly the way you assumed it would. Yeah. I also think she had this personal connection to the material. Like she True. was from she was a beauty queen. She was from Rose Mount, Minnesota. So she's mm-hmm. basically Mount Rose. Uh, and she won a junior teen Miss, I think, uh, pageant. And so I think she like felt like she had to portray this in the way that she felt it needed to be portrayed. And it's so hard when you are so connected to material to like separate yourself and say, well, this is not how I feel about it or this is not how I experienced yeah. it. And I think like, um, did you guys know that she was the voice of Amber Dempsey on that episode of The Simpsons, like Lisa, the beauty queen? Uh, really? Yes. Yes. She like was, I think, like an assistant on The Simpsons, like in the late 80s, early 90s. And she was the voice of that character. So I think she's been like, she was gearing up to sort of like tell this story about teen girls in pageants and even Amber's her- the one with the like teeth and then like mm-hmm. was it there's something about the eyelash implants and the, the other yes. girl's like Lisa's like I thought those were illegal and the other girl's like not in Paraguay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's like a precursor like that character kind of feels like um Becky and Lehman in yes in Drop Dead Gorgeous and Lisa is Amber Atkin. You know, I thought about that while watching this, and I'm so glad you're bringing that up. Like how I think that's one of the strongest Simpsons episodes in in the whole Simpsons canon. It's the one where, you know, the idea of Homer, he gives up his ride for the Duff blimp. Right. And then because he thinks Lisa has she has no confidence. She's told that she's ugly based on that caricature. And he gives up his ride so he can enter her into a beauty pageant against her will to prove that she's as beautiful as he sees her as. And it's such a great episode because any other show would have had the fantasy of like she wins it and, you know, she is beautiful inside and out. And that's not that's not reality. Of course, she doesn't win it. She wins it because the other character gets um, Amber is is, I think, electrocuted by lightning. (laughs) It's my memory of it in the the episode. Yeah. And then she's crowned because she's too political, kind of like Vanessa Williams. Well, Vanessa Williams is dethroned because of pornography or just posing in Playboy, which is not pornography. But like, it's just such a realistic episode of how beauty pageants go and the politics of them. And, you know, it doesn't matter. It's it's all bought and it's it's sponsorship and branding. And it's not about who's the most beautiful and what the fuck does that even mean to begin with. But it's also about the value of women. I mean, we could go on and on about why pageants are wrong, but I think what makes this movie so interesting is that um, it's it's about the friends you make along the way. Like, mm-hmm. it, what's so great about it is that a lesser film would be you're worried about the actual competition and who's going to win, when at the very beginning they establish she's not going to win. So you just take your time to really get to know all of these different characters and watch them try and I think that's fun because then you get to be one of the outsiders it makes you one of the outsiders in a good way yeah and it's also you know just to go back to the plot like the as the beauty queens start dying off 
um, and it becomes incredibly clear that Amber is target number one, there is a point where she wants to drop out, which is a very reasonable reaction. Her mother completely beats her up from a hospital bed with the beer can that's um, melted to her hand <laughs> because this is her mother's dream is to see her just fulfill her daughter's dream. You know, the stakes are high. Girls are dying. Like, she is yeah. sabotaged. She switches numbers with one of the girls and, like... Um, a lamp falls from the rafters of the stage and like knocks her out and makes her deaf, which is which fulfills her dream. (laughs) Yes, because her talent was ASL, (laughs) which is a bad joke. It's a bad joke. These are some of the jokes we're talking about that are a little not great today. But um, yeah, stakes are high. She's going to die. And then we have we have a body count here. Like, it's incredible. Yeah. But that's also what desensitizes her at the very end so she can achieve her dream because what other young woman is going to yes. rip the microphone out of a dying reporter's hand so yes. she can get her big break on TV? Well, like, everyone's man. being shot at by the woman who tried to kill her who's just escaped from prison. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was I was reading that that was not actually supposed to be like um, Mrs. Lehman. It was supposed to be was that librarian. Like, it was the librarian, you know, the like yeah. woman that's like the ancient. The Lodafisk woman. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. The it one was- that had won in 1945 and had to melt her uh, tiara for the war effort. Oh my god, yes. Her. It was supposed to be her and the actual ending for Mrs. Lehman was going to be that she like hung herself in prison, which like, yeah, so I guess you know, the the vision that Lana had for this movie was like even darker than we know. Like we are, this is still a dark movie. It's, I would say it's a very dark comedy and that's why I wouldn't recommend it to people. But like what she wanted to show was like the darkest thing possible. And I think the same went for Sugar and Spice. Um, but she felt like she got a lot of pushback on that one because it was post uh, Columbine and we're yeah. having these girls of course. like you know, with guns, it it felt very provocative for that time. So you can understand why she maybe got some pushback. But I think like she I, I it sucks that like her dark, twisted mind didn't get that opportunity to really like show itself because I, I feel like I would be so into whatever she put out there. I mean, it might not have aged mm-hmm. a while. I feel like she would be maybe canceled in this time but i i just feel like we missed out on something and i and i feel sad that like she didn't even feel comfortable enough to put her name on sugar and spice she used a pseudonym yeah she's not in the she's not working in the industry anymore right she's pretty much i don't from my understanding that's correct i haven't seen her i applaud her for giving interviews about this film there's you know a buzzfeed article that's uh, on occasion of the 15th anniversary. So it's quite old. Um, and it's interesting that article talks about how the only way to see Drop Dead Gorgeous at that point was like buying a $100 like DVD off eBay because it this film has been completely unavailable for a very long time. It's no longer the case. In the United States, it's on Hulu, which was like really celebrated in a lot of cult film circles because finally, and I believe it's on Blu-ray just recently, um, but in terms of Canadian rights, there's some sort of issue because it's it's not available to us in Canada for either theatrical screening. The international rights are the problem because New Line, even to finance this before the movie was even completed, they sold the international rights. Yeah. And that's that's why. And so those are sort of all over the place in limbo. In fact, it was such a snafu that they were like, in order to kind of get an international audience, quote unquote, they put in a mega Japanese pop star superstar, Seiko Matsuda. She plays Molly Howard's sister to kind of appease the Asian market, which is just wild. And also thinking about that in like the late 90s of like you're thinking of the the international rights for this small 
almost indie-esque sort of girls movie and the the international rights are what you were concerned about rather than the domestic box office. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, I will just hold on to my DVD and, and VHS of this. I have both. So... <laughs> And if you're ever like short up, like just put it on eBay, you could maybe get 250 bucks or something like that. <laughs> hey. All right. Just to bring us to the end of this uh, this segment here. So as we mentioned earlier, this is a movie that is not for everybody. There's a lot of stuff in here that's like, oh boy, especially now. However, I think if you're a fan of Mean Girls, you will like this. For sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This is this is the, you know, like kind of the, the grandmother to Mean Girls, I feel like. Um, and I mean yeah. that in a, in a positive way. If you were an outsider in high school, but maybe str- even if you straddled both worlds of outsider yet also was, you know, kind of monolithic and um, part of like hegemony in high school, you'll probably still love this. Like the, it just kind of pleases everyone. If you're super sensitive, this is not the film for you. Yeah, no. <laughs> go go watch Jawbreaker instead because I think that is still a provocative dark film, but it doesn't. It have- is, and we will be talking about it later this season. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hear more about that, make sure to listen, rate, and subscribe. On that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it's all about Dick. That's coming up after the break. Everything I know about the Watergate scandal, I learned from the movie Dick. And that's actually a reasonable amount. That's shocking considering it contains a plot point of pot cookies preventing nuclear war, a bickering Will Ferrell and Bruce McCullough as Woodward and Bernstein, and, my favorite, a romantic beach set dream sequence featuring a bespeckled Michelle Williams gallivanting with Dan Hedaya's Nixon. This movie is bonkers, and it genuinely makes me miss the mid-budget, high-concept comedy movie in a way that I feel in my very bones. Alicia, I am all about Dick. Are you? Yeah, I did not grow up with Dick as a child. Yeah. Um, We were already laughing. Sorry, (laughs) we were trying to keep a straight face. It's impossible. They make this joke like four times within the movie. So as they yell the word Dick and people stop and look at them. So, you know, it's common. Yeah, I didn't grow up with this. Watching it for this podcast, I am enamored. This is, you're right, it's cuckoo bananas, but this is a masterpiece. This is what every comedy should aspire to. I am delighted by this film. I cannot wait to watch it again. It is at at the time of recording currently on Hollywood Suite and most likely still on Hollywood Suite um, upon the time of this airing, which there might be a gap. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. But uh, yeah, this is this is a film that is about two teen girls played by Kristen Dunst and uh, Michelle Williams, Betsy and Arlene, respectively. Arlene's mother, played by Terry Garr. Terry Garr and her daughter Arlene live in an apartment across from the Watergate Hotel. And somehow in a situation where the two girls are going to write a letter to Bobby Sherman to win a contest where they have a date with him, they have to sneak out and mail it. And they inadvertently witness the Watergate Hotel break-in and witness, you know, basically one of the most criminal acts any president has ever committed and was tried almost tried for and they to date that we know about yeah (laughs) true they think it's a jewel heist the next day they go on a field trip with their class to the white house and the guys who spotted the girls like see the girls in the white house and they think that they're kind of in on it that they know too much and i mean these girls know nothing they have no clue what's happening so in a roundabout way i came in this everything i say sounds like total lunacy, but I promise you this all happens. President Nixon encounters the girls and makes them the secret like 
teen ambassadors to the White House and then the official dog walker for checkers. Checkers, <laughs> now here's like, a, there's a, a couple things in this film, maybe more than a couple that are a little inaccurate. Mm-hmm. But one of the most inaccurate things is checkers never spent time at the White House. He was an infamous presidential dog that it's kind of rumored that perhaps Nixon didn't even like. And in fact, on a tape, you can hear him kicking checkers, which really upsets the girls. So they're, you know, they're witnessing things like the shredding of papers, the enormous payoffs. They've stolen a piece of paper as a souvenir that they don't realize is the kind of heart of the deep throat case, which is, you know, paper evidence of all the payoffs that the um, President Nixon's campaign made to people who were aware of the Watergate break in. Uh, And it just ensues from there. They get the president hide. Unbeknownst to them, they take um, Betsy's brother's Hello Dolly bars or cookies and they're laced with pot and they're getting, you know, I think Khrushchev at one point is high. Henry Kissinger is high, played by Saul Rubenstein. This cast, Harry Shearer, Saul Rubenstein, um, Bruce McCullough. Dave Foley. Dave Foley. With Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell. Like, Terry Gar, who I already mentioned. Like, this is insanity. Yeah. Uh, it's so, so funny. And unfortunately, Arlene kind of gives up her crush on Bobby Sherman and falls for Dick, played by Dan <laughs> Hedaya. So uh, but then, you know, they realize that he's maybe not as great of a guy as they thought. And they <laughs> decide to take down the president and ultimately become Deep Throat. Because keep yeah. in mind, in 1999, Deep Throat had not been revealed yet. That's it true. wasn't until like 2005 that the FBI agent who is Deep Throat, and we know is Deep Throat now, I can't remember his name, Matt Feld, I think. Mark um, Feld? Mark Feld. Uh, I should know this as it doesn't matter. But um, I like thinking that Kristen Dunst and <laughs> Michelle Williams are Deep Throat more. You know, that wasn't known. So this, not that this would ever have been speculative or, you know, has any reality to it. But I just love the idea that maybe they were Deep Throat. Like maybe it was two teenage girls who were, you know, walking checkers that brought down an entire presidency and ended the optimism that America had in the government and started, you know, and in some ways brought down the idea of Vietnam. And this is this is all due to two 15 year old girls who aren't that bright, but yet are awesome. I love the idea that this is just perfect political satire buffoonery. Every single person in this movie is a buffoon, um, (laughs) which is what's so wonderful. And you just kind of watch them bounce off each other. I cannot explain how much I love uh, the bickering of Woodward and Bernstein, who if people kind of know more about their careers, exactly. Um, If you know more about them and their careers, like they are highly respected journalists, but they're also kind of doofy. (laughs) And they hated each other. They hate each other. And so when you when you see um, and it's Bruce McCullough and Will Ferrell who play like baby men so well, just like going at each other, devolving into slap fights. You're trying to horn in on my source. You get to meet Deep Throat. I'm the one who actually saw that movie. Funny. So it's taking like these little things that you would, that are kind of like kernels of truth about people and amplifying them. Like like Dick Nixon is like a full monster um, and amplifying them. Like there's um, an element of, yeah, it's, it's Buffon. It's the French like Farsi Buffon where everyone's a monster with the exception of these two women, but in the best possible way. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. All Everyone's an idiot. Like I, I think that that's what I appreciate about this movie is that like- Across the board. Yes, they are like quote unquote idiots, but I don't believe they're idiots. I believe that they're actually like smart, but they're just uninformed and then they become- they're 15. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like, yeah. I shouldn't have said that they're dumb, but 
they're just they were like me at 15 pretty yeah. pretty uninformed <laughs> yeah yeah and they've got their focuses elsewhere on bobby sherman and on their clothes and and like and just uh, stuff that teen girls are into but they become radicalized over the course of mm-hmm. the film even the way that they dress changes they like kind of become more like hippie-ish over the time they start wearing like little headbands and like peace signs and they like make an outfit out of the american flag at the end of the movie like which they- is illegal Yes, exactly. So <laughs> they become like radicalized accidentally by this. And and everything that happens to them is because everybody else is an idiot. People don't have sense to lock a door where they're shredding paper and counting money. You know, these guys are not paying attention to well, who else is in the Watergate. Uh, stairwell at the at that time people are leaving important documents on the floor that can attach to somebody's shoe and they can pick that it someone's up dog might eat yeah which does happen yeah so it's like i like that part of it too that it's not just saying oh these idiots made it happen it's like everyone's a little bit of an idiot uh and there's reasons why everything went wrong it's not just these these people were being messy too you know you're spot on emily and i think it's not just that these are buffoons. It's that they underestimated the girls. The characters, like Nixon even, underestimate the girls. Like they steal the tape. Like they just, they think they're so stupid. Although they, the guys get really into the Hello Dolly bars. Um, like it <laughs> oh, is yeah. so funny. They sing a song from the Broadway production of Hello Dolly at they one point. They sing the theme song, Hello Dolly. Oh, <laughs> yes. So funny. But uh yeah, they underestimate how resourceful these two are and their their bond. Um, they have an incredible bond. This is a friendship that I really related to, that kind of sleepover friendship. Um, and can we talk about Ryan Reynolds? I could not believe yeah. it. I, I think I must have been blinking when I was watching the opening credits because he is in the opening credits. Ryan Reynolds in this film as a total dork. Uh, very brief role kind of in the third act, but it's it's pretty iconic to me. Aren't you Haldeman's son? No, that's Brad. I'm his roommate at school. He's at the dermatologist. He's he's like a himbo in it. He's kind yes. of just like he's like he's like uh, having beer and like just trying to make it with not, not having beer. I believe the term Sorry. is shotgun. Shotgunning. No. Yes, <laughs> shotgunning beer. I was shotgunning like beer. I was not a party animal, so I don't know. But he's he's like drunk trying to get with Kirsten Dunst, who's too cool for him. Like I love. <laughs> he's also not like fit like he is now. He's kind of like just regular old Ryan Reynolds. It's, it's Reg- regular Reynolds. Oh reg- my god, we should hashtag that. Put that on Twitter, and he'll actually probably respond. Yeah, but like he, <laughs> he well, and he's he's a, he's playing the dumb but pretty that he played for the first half of his career yeah. until he turned into cynical but pretty. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. It, but it really works. It's like a, it's a small scene, but it's like somebody saw the potential in Ryan Reynolds at that moment to be comedic, and I, I think that's where he succeeds the most in general. Like, I feel like he's been kind of put in this like weird action knee box, and I'm like, just make him do funny stuff. Like that's what he does. Not that I'm a huge Ryan Reynolds fan, I will put that out there. But um, everyone, I think, in this movie is so well cast, but especially the two leads and I I absolutely loved on this watch realizing that Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams are the two uh cast first listed in the credits like mm-hmm. uh-huh. there's so many other people in this movie that could have been listed ahead of them and it's them and this movie even the marketing campaign like it's them on the poster it's not even Dan Hedaya as Nixon it's them the m- 
The marketing, though, for this movie is interesting because it was kind of a, and I think that's one of the reasons why this film is faded. There's not a lot written about this. The directors and the writers don't really talk about it. There wasn't like a 15-year uh, revisitation of it, which is really unfortunate because I think this is really special. But it is one of those like, who is this for? So the marketing was like, well, we think it's for teen girls, so we're going to put the emphasis on Kristen Dunst and Michelle Williams. But like the political aspects of this and like the Nixon and uh, and the Dan Hedaya performance as Nixon is is really good. He's not doing like a like a full caricature, like over the top. He's playing it really straight. Wondering if you had that package ready for me to take home over the weekend. Oh, yeah, the musical tapes. Bob and I are very big fans of Guy Lombardo. I taped them myself. Let me know what you think. I will, sir. This was compared to like Anthony Hopkins's role as Nixon, you know, just a few years prior. Uh, there were co- there was commentary that saying that this was the the greatest caricature performance of that year was Dan Hedaya as Nixon, and I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, it's just interesting of like how would you market this movie, right? Because like if you go yeah, too far into the political angle, you're gonna lose your certain like. But that's I, the uh, beauty of movies that aren't for of these mid budget movies that aren't trying to appeal to a wide audience. Is like was, the people this is for. To kinda... This is for. I was thinking about this because I was like, okay, remember when we were in the 90s, the three of us, not together, (laughs) but um, (laughs) the fashions were very 70s, very bell bottoms like that was. And no, that's now the 2020s, which blows my mind. It's everything's on a 30 year cycle, right? And I think it's really interesting to take a 90s teen comedy and look at what the 70s really were. Because, of course, when you're going back and you're wearing, you know, bell bottoms in in the 90s, you're romanticizing an era that was incredibly traumatic with the Vietnam War, with with Watergate, with an incredible amount of atrocities, um, where very much the summer of love is over. The 60s are over. Like, this is now political turmoil and um, recession and despair. Uh, And so looking at that in a teen comedy, I think is really brilliant because, you know, these girls are Betsy's more affluent. She lives in Georgetown with her family than Arlene. But like these are white, affluent girls who can afford the latest fashions, um, trying to figure out the world around them. I love when they're on their field trip to uh, the White House and the teacher announces that like you'll be, you know, you're going to see the Oval Office. The kids do not fucking care. And then she says, and then we will go for a field trip lunch to McDonald's. And the cheering and Kirsten Dunst just saying, (laughs) it's perfect. And I don't know, to answer your question, I don't know who this was made for. Um, I know critics loved it and I'm so happy about that in a way that they did not love Drop Dead Gorgeous. I know that Kirsten Dunst, I mean, I think if we want to pick a year of the Dunst, it's probably 2020, 2021. Sorry, 2021, 2022. We are recording this at the time, not yet knowing if she's won her Academy Award. I have my fingers crossed. But um, if the real year of Dunst is 99. Oh, my God. Oh, Ver- yeah. like, thinking about that, you know, she's coming off of Interviews of Vampire just five years prior. Jumanji, 15 and pregnant. Anyone? 15 and pregnant? Mm-hmm, you ever seen mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm. Fucking her run masterpiece. on ER. <laughs> we talked about she's, her ER run now. ER, where she's a yeah, child prostitute. Love. I had talked about that on the podcast before, right? Oh, the other Kristen so. Dunst yeah, episode. When we did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this is really her, her <laughs> year where she breaks out. And what's so amazing is that she's playing the age that she actually is which is 15, 16, where someone like Denise Richards in Drop Dead Gorgeous is 29, 30, playing 17. What was great about Kirsten Dunst in this era, and it would certainly be a huge asset in the next year and bring it on, and we've done a podcast episode on that last year, is that she is herself. She is relatable to teens who are watching this at 15 because she is 15. 
and she has that spirit. And I, I just, um, also, I would also, I want to shout out that she was on Teen Jeopardy. And I remember seeing her on Teen Jeopardy. And I was such a fan of Kirsten Dunst from a li- being a little girl and seeing her like cream people on Teen Jeopardy made me so happy because here's this blonde girl who's been completely underestimated, just so smart and um, so worldly. And I think that's what makes Dick so successful. Michelle Williams is also wonderful. This is, you know, Dawson's Creek era. Yeah. But I don't know who this film was for. That's what got actually the Teen Jeopardy appearance is what got her drop dead gorgeous was that. um yeah, they, they saw her on that and was like, okay, and, and talking about exactly that. She seems innocent. She's brighter than she actually appears to be, right? Yeah. Why are we so mean to blonde, like young, blonde, skinny women? I get why we, you know, but I mean, <laughs> I get it. Like I do, but do I'm you also... really want to start this conversation? No, I don't. But I'm just like, I think the underestimation of Kirsten Dunst, which has plagued her career up until... I don't know, six or seven years ago. Um, I think Fargo was a big turning point. I'm just really yeah. depressed that that's how we treat women. Um, and I think women treat women that way in a, in film critical circles. And a film like Dick, as well as Drop Dead Gorgeous, and I mean, sure, Virgin Suicides, it's a masterpiece, kind of really lays bare how um, f- unfortunate and futile that is. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I... As somebody who has chosen to be a blonde woman uh, mm-hmm. and will be forever because I mm-hmm. I like the juxtaposition of it and I I think that I like to uh, be underestimated and prove people wrong and I th- <laughs> and I and I think that this was a time period where there was a lot of blonde girls that were underestimated I will say yeah. like a uh, Britney Spears who you know is having a reckoning now uh, where people are like yeah we treated her like shit that sucks um, Pamela and Anderson Pamela Anderson like all of these women. Um, and even like looking at something like Clueless, like I think people like assume that Cher Horowitz as a character is an idiot, but she's actually really smart, but she likes clothes and mm-hmm. she has money and she cares about uh, dating people. You know, like it just I think in general, like aside from the blonde thing, like we just underestimate teen girls so often um, in society. And like Kirsten Dunst to me was like the first time that I saw like realized teen girls and even like child characters like I think I think she kind of was like the brat character early on in her career because like you think of her playing Amy March in Little Women and mm-hmm. even like Claudia in Interview with a Vampire is kind of like a bratty little girl that oh, like yeah yeah, yeah yeah and so here she's sort of like evolving into playing a more complicated version of that character a grown-up version of that character and it's like I was enamored with her and I wanted to be her because she felt accessible to me. She was beautiful and she still is beautiful. But I think she had this like level of realness, which is pretty incredible considering that she was a child star. Like Mm -hmm. she could have gone the other way. But to this day, she has this quality. And I think I'm so happy that she found Sofia Coppola because they've worked together so many times. And Sofia has given her these opportunities to really like play with that interesting layered performance art that she does like Marie Antoinette like that's like that's incredible I one of my fondest memories is doing Marie Antoinette at the Royal getting the macaroons getting the Marie Antoinette themed cakes and just like celebrating the frivolity of that film but also realizing that it was a, a scathing indictment of how we treat young girls including people like Kirsten Dunst up until that point in 2006. I love everything you said, Emily. It excites me so much. And I'm just so 
proud to be a lifelong Kirsten Dunst stan and to see where we are right now. Um, I love that her boyfriend, her, her baby daddy is Jesse Plemons. I think they're engaged, but like just this whole family unit, I'm very excited about. Um, and yeah, I'm just, she's, she's, I, I'm, I gush a little bit when it comes to Kirsten Dunst. I watch Interview the Vampire every six months. And <laughs> as I, you should, as how do you, you find should. the time? <laughs> I, um, oh man, that was another VHS that I wore out, but uh, I still watch that performance of her. She's 11 what the hell like how in the world how in the world does a child channel something like that and i i don't think she's done i think it's it's that level of amazing throughout her entire career no matter what she's in i love the david bogdanovich cat's meow no one talks about it she played marion davies there is this like treasure trove of kirsten dunn's filmography that we have not explored and it's full of films like dick that are probably even less known than dick um that i feel like in 100 years people are gonna like teach a course on kirsten dunst I, is this going to be a new series for you, Emily? Are you going to do uh, We Really it. Like Kristen Dunst? I know. I've talked about this with Emily. It's a great idea. I've really considered it because um, another person that we've been considering is Drew Barrymore, which I think had a similar kind of trajectory in that they were both child stars and they kind of like emerged into this like teen world. Like this is the same year actually that uh, Never Been Kissed came out. This mm-hmm. this year for teen films, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't even get into it. The list is crazy. Like the list is like, okay, uh, I wrote it down. She's All That, Detroit Rock City, Cruel Intentions, Never Been Kissed, American Pie, 10 Things I Hate About You, Election, Jawbreaker, Varsity Blues. Like it's Election. A- election. Yeah. This Dick is the same year as Election. That is mind-blowing. Like, that's a double bill, a perfect mm-hmm. double bill of underestimated blonde women. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is maybe this is a series that I could do, but um, but I I really think Kirsten Dunst. Uh, has been underestimated because of some of these movies she has been in, even like a Bring It On, I think, like, which I know gets a lot of credit, like more credit than this film does, more credit mm-hmm. than Drop Dead Gorgeous does. But I think she was put in this box and she also ended up being in Spider-Man and 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 did a lot of bigger things. But I think she was always kind of relegated to the side character eventually, like the supporting role, which is crazy because she was the lead role. And it it breaks my heart a little bit that she had this down period and that we've taken so long to give her an Oscar nomination, but she deserves it. She sh- I think she should have been nominated for something like The Virgin Suicides. I think she should have been nominated for something like Marie Antoinette. Um, and Michelle Williams has, g- just so you know, at the time, Emily, uh, like it was considered a snub that she wasn't nominated okay. for Interview with the Vampire. Okay, thank you, because she she deserved it back then. She deserved it for every, I would give her a nomination anytime <laughs> she does anything. She was in that freaking Savage Garden video, give her a nomination. <laughs> <laughs> You know? All right, I have to take us away from Kristen Dunst now, uh, just because we're we're starting to wrap up, and there's a couple more people I think we should talk about. Okay, so like Gail Ann Hurd is the mm-hmm. head producer on this, executive producer, and for people who don't know that, she was um, James Cameron's producer for a long time, and then she went off on her like Terminator, Terminator Two. That's all her. All that stuff doesn't happen without That's why her. She has and great she access to off. helicopters, and which came in handy for <laughs> exactly. this film because that helicopter scene where you know Nixon is is walking away in disgrace, having just given up the presidency. Um, that is, she was able to get like an official, she has the pull to get like an official helicopter to make Can that Can we also happen. talk about this this soundtrack at this moment too? Because the it's last amazing. song that you hear is You're So Vain and how brilliant yeah. is that? I know we talked about Carly Simon I, earlier I said in the season when we talked about Perfect, night. but man, Carly, oh, it's yeah. perfection. 
It's yeah. perfection. Um, and of course, Cheryl Longan, we're talking about writer, fem- uh, female um, writer directors. Cheryl Longan wrote this. And apparently it's based on a childhood experience where she and her family stayed in the state, in- stayed in the same hotel as Nixon. Wow. And she and her friend threw ice at him from a mm-hmm. window. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's like that is unbelievable. It's funny because I was reading that one of the Andrew Fleming was saying that one of the things that really surprised him f- making this film is um, the studio and a few other people were very concerned about, you know, being too mean to Nixon. Like there was this sort of in the late 90s, this effort to rehabilitate his image, which thank God we've gotten over that impulse because there is no rehabilitation to this this monster. Uh, But it's it's curious that like in 99, he'd have to face that the idea of people being like, oh, don't be mean to Richard Nixon. He didn't know what was going on. So I love the story of her pelting him with ice cubes. (laughs) That's amazing. <laughs> what year was Frost Nixon? Because I feel like that movie. Uh, it's a couple years before this. Yeah. 2008. Oh, 2008. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 2008. So yeah, a long, a long way from there. Because it's Ron Howard. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that definitely was another like nail in the coffin for, for him. But that's not till 2008. We got another decade before that. Yeah. I would say like but this, but to be honest, this is like my introduction to Nixon, to Me too. the Watergate <laughs> scandal. Like, yeah. like it just is. And it, I, I think back to like seeing this and I saw this in theaters, which is pretty surprising. But like my mom, who is very into politics and was born in 1959, so would have been about the age of these girls when this was oh, happening. Right. Yeah. Like I, I've kind of wish I'd seen it with her, but I felt like this movie gave me like sort of like a window into her life that I never got before. But I ended up going to see it with my my friend who's my so my friend now and his mom in theaters and being like oh my god like I what like I was just floored by what I was learning and I think going back to that question of like who was this for it's like I don't really know and I don't really care because I think that (laughs) because it is for me it's it's for for us the three of us Yeah, yeah yeah and um I think that like I don't know that I would have understood Watergate properly if I not for this movie. Even to this day, sometimes I read stuff about Watergate. And I was like, wait, what happened? And then I go, okay, what happened to Dick? Yeah. What happened to Dick? And then pretend it's like I, I do know about Watergate. And like, obviously, I'm just being introduced to this film. Yeah. But it gave me a, a more fulsome perspective on Watergate and also a geography and like map that I don't think I had earlier where it's like, right, Watergate was a like a... A hotel. There was apartments across the street. Like there was a parking garage, and then they go down the street mm-hmm. and they meet Deep Throat. Like I was like, ah, yes, 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 yes. This is like a Google map right now that I'm now being being able to visualize. Yeah, yeah. And it's also important to point out that this is also a commentary on the Lewinsky scandal yeah, as yeah. well. There's also a bunch of winks in here that I think are handled extremely well because 95, 96 is when the Lewinsky scandal happened. So like this possibly would have been conceived and written uh, like around that time to be produced for 99, right? Mm-hmm. So you would have this idea of especially young women in the White House and they do it really smartly in here. It's not too overt talking about how like Kissinger kind of believes that Nixon is having an affair with these two 15-year-olds. Like, there's something <laughs> yeah. really inappropriate going on He's like, on what, here what hell is this about. now? <laughs> exactly. But also knowing that Kissinger is, like, one of the shadiest human beings in, like, possibly world history. Um, but that's... Is he dead? I don't even know if he's dead. He's probably dead. It's, it seems, like, reasonable. So. He's dead. I think... I think so. Let's look it up. He'd be, like, 120... <laughs> Right? <laughs> Probably. Possibly. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely references to that of like, it would be perfectly oh my normal God. for the president. He's alive. Really? He is alive. How old? How old? 98. 
Okay. What? Okay. I'm willing to bet by the time this podcast airs, he's definitely going to be dead. <laughs> I know that's awful, but like, I'm I'm calling it. I'm putting, I'm, again, I'm not All a betting, right. I'm not a gambling woman, but I'm gambling on Kissinger dying. Big money, big money on Kissinger's death. Oh my God, he's I love this podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right. I mean, we have to say the same thing for Dick Van Dyke at that point, and I'm not willing to say that because he is mm. going to live forever, especially in my heart. I'm not going to take that. I back. know. All right. Sounds good. Um, all right. At that moment, I think we need to end this podcast on the revelation that Kissinger is still alive. <laughs> so Alicia Fletcher, thank you once again for joining us. Oh, thank you, Becky. This is this was such a fun episode that I purposely didn't take any notes because I just wanted to like ad lib it. And I want to thank Emily because it was really nice having you on here. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you, you executive produced this podcast anyway, but it's just nice because I knew <laughs> this was like kind of coming up with a topic. It was like, oh, my God, there's we could do a Kirsten Dunst episode with Emily and you're the perfect perfect guest for this well thank you thank you for having me because i i just these films i remember so viscerally watching for the first time and connecting with and i just i feel honored to be part of this conversation because it means a lot to me also one last thing before we go this movie was shot in toronto uh scooters uh the roller no no that's scooters yeah yeah you know what i said during that scene i had a birthday party at a place called scooters once it looks like that that's it's it. scooters that's oh my it. god that's crazy <laughs> yeah. scooters roller I mean, that's palace why it's it's it is a canadian uh co-pro that's why what? the um kids in the hall actors are in it yeah because there's some houses that I, so it is filmed in georgetown for sure i've only been to georgetown once but brendan my partner also a former guest on this podcast when we were watching it together he's like that looks a lot like toronto and i was like no it is it, it is it is oh so. my god i'm instantly gonna go and research all the filming locations and go take photos right now please do please do and <laughs> right. give them to me for our social media so <laughs> okay do you want to tell people how they can hear your podcast and more of your work oh yes um so i have a podcast called we really like her it's about women in film right now we're doing um well by the time this comes out we'll probably be done the miniseries but so you can listen to all the episodes but we've been doing a miniseries on jane fonda called fonda vision we are w- going through her filmography it's really fun we just did an episode on barbarella which i feel like is weirdly <laughs> connected to these films i can't explain it so just listen to the episode and you'll find out why i'm saying that um also uh you know i write some for some places like dread central um and i have an instagram that i think maybe could relate to somebody who likes the costumes of dick it's called final girl fashion and i post photos of iconic uh women in horror wearing iconic outfits so that's amazing thank you for doing god's work i i try (laughs) i try to do it for you're doing it you're really doing it thank you All right, and you can join us in two weeks where we continue on with our dark teenage shenanigans. It's going to be Jawbreaker and Cruel Intentions. And we're going to be joined by podcaster, journalist, and comedian, Emil Nayazi. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and the series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. On four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Emily Gagne as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>